We'll be hanging out here for a while, but I also think that God is going uh, to use that to shape us in some really valuable things, some really good things. Um, and we're calling our effort Beautifully Upside Down. Uh, as, as you can tell, uh, Garrett did our artwork. It looks awesome as usual. You can always tell the difference between, I sla- between when I slap something together and then when the pro steps in. Um, it's pretty. I, I put words on top of a picture that I stole from somebody else. He makes things. There's a difference in that. And so, uh, yeah, uh, so Garrett has blessed us again with, with artwork for our stuff. Uh, but we're calling our series Beautifully Upside Down because I really think that that's Paul's main thesis throughout this letter. All right, that, that, that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down, but not just upside down for, for nonsense sake, not just to make things complicated. It's beautifully upside down. And, and he's speaking to a church that, that has a long list of sin and a long list of misconceptions about the gospel. Uh, and, and I think anybody that's paying attention probably is going to distance themselves from the church at Corinth a, a good bit. Like, like you, you look around here for any length of time and you go, yeah, yeah, we're healthier than those guys. We're, we're a lot better off than they are. We're not struggling with the same level of stuff. It doesn't mean we don't have struggles. It doesn't mean we don't have sin and misconceptions. But th- there seems to be a layer above or even a, a handful of layers above what, what we have to deal with. And, and I think it would be easy for us, or maybe it just is for me, I think it would be easier for us to to scoff at, at their failure and just kind of assume that we're pretty far removed from that. But I, t- I told you a couple weeks ago that I don't think that the pathway from healthy, vibrant church to train wreck like Corinth is as far of a walk as what we naturally assume it to be. I think the pathway between healthy, vibrant, and an absolute mess is far easier and far more subtle to fall into And we all kind of hope. I think that shift can happen much more subtly than we really expect. And so, while we're not Corinth, not at all, and we get to celebrate what God has done here, I think a humble walk through this letter can serve as a strategic moment to kind of reorient ourselves, right? To to check our bearing and make certain that, that we're following our call, that we're following the expectations that God has actually laid upon us, demanded of us. Add to that the fact that the culture in Corinth and, and the, the culture that the church in Corinth was, was called to play itself out in, it actually looks a whole lot like our own. Yeah, there's some differences in technology, there's some difference in style of government, but, but the values and the things that we chase after, it's it's not all that different from what they experienced 2,000 years ago in the Greek city. And, and so Paul's Corinthian letters kind of end up feeling more like game film for us. They, they end up feeling like something that we should probably study pretty carefully before we have our own test on the issue. Because it's coming. It's definitely coming. So take some notes because we're going to see this stuff again. And maybe you felt it too by now, but surely it's come up for you. But the gospel and Jesus's, uh, the gospel and Jesus's kingdom are often in direct conflict with the world that we find ourselves living in. Have you experienced that yet? Maybe, or is everything rosy for you? Jesus, Jesus's commands on our lives. That, how he calls us to see the world, what he's called us to, to value and to chase after and pursue. I mean, doesn't it feel sometimes like literally the exact opposite of what everybody else is celebrating? So that's come up, right? 
And we can ascribe whatever term we want to it. We can call it backwards. We can call it antiquated. We can call it upside down. But whatever we call it, Jesus seems to constantly be expecting us to go the wrong direction. Right? The opposite direction. And once you notice that, there's an incredibly important question that needs to emerge, that needs to be answered in every one of our hearts. Do you think that's on purpose? you think that's by design? you think he's got some master plan behind his backwards commands, or is he just kind of struggling lately to keep up with speed? you think he's lost a step? Jesus getting a little old, a little slow in the head? Need to hire a good young PR director to keep him with the times. And, and I know that joking like that may seem out of bounds for some. I, I get that. But um, I kind of think that our hearts go to an even darker places if we're not careful. I think we're capable of taking it far more out of bounds if if we don't address this head-on, whenever, whenever uh, Jesus' kingdom and his commands have a head-on collision with our hearts and culture, I think we're actually capable of taking it to a much more terrifying place. We start to wonder if he's good. We start to, to wonder if he actually understands reality. We begin to doubt if he really is who he says he is. Joking sounds like a better option. Make no mistake about it, Jesus' kingdom is upside down to the values and the competing kingdoms of this world. It's no accident, though. It's completely on purpose. And so we're going to see that that on-purpose upside-downness plays out over and over and over again in this letter. But rather than turning away, though, because it's hard or because it's confusing, because uh, uh, rather than turning away because it, it might cost us something or initially seem like it costs us something that's too high and too valuable, we're trying to discipline ourselves throughout this series to ask the question, okay, but is it beautiful? Yeah, yeah it, 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 it strikes us as awkward, and it strikes us as scary, and it strikes us as confusing, but is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answer to those questions are yes, well then the hurdle, no matter how high the hurdle seems to be at first, the hurdle isn't actually as high as we are fearful that it is. There's promise on the other side of that. There's rest on the other side of that. There's joy on the other side of that hurdle. So jump it. So we spent the last couple of weeks looking into to Paul's kind of initial greeting and then a, a quick word of thanksgiving. And now we get to take a look at what I think is probably the first little bit of, of meat to this letter. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 10 this morning. He says this. We're going to take this piece by piece. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Right, so let's call a time out there. Paul says that he appeals to them, right? There's a pleading here. If you're a King James fan, the word is beseech, right? And let's be honest, that's a word that needs to make a comeback in our culture. I beseech you. There's an urgent pleading in his tone here. That, that's what's going on. He says, don't you understand what's going on? 
Don't you see what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening to you? Paul's appeal is to call for, a, for us to pay a closer attention to something that's, that's being overlooked at the moment. So, so what's going on then? What is he calling us to pay attention to? Divisions are forming. The catalyst for this letter seems to be that people that make up the church of Corinth are beginning to split themselves up and faction themselves off into multiple tribes. They're picking their teams. They're beginning to choose this side or that side. And like you can probably assume, those divisions are beginning to wreck their unity. That's the impetus of this letter. Paul sees what's going on, and he's going to go after it before it causes any more damage. And so Paul pleads with them to to be united. He pleads with them to, to judge rightly and to hold to the conviction that they ought to be of one mind about things. That's what he says. And, and, and reading that, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if it happens in your heart, but it definitely happens in my heart. Don't you immediately start to think of all the things that it's really hard to be of one mind about? Don't you have a long list? Because I have a long list. There are a lot of things in this world that are plenty worthy of dividing over. I could start rattling off a few. In fact, in fact, there are some things in this world that I think a right judgment of actually requires us to be divided over. Right? If you think that, I agree wholeheartedly so. I, in fact, I'd even add to that the reality that you can't actually be of one mind about anything when you start adding people to the mix. It doesn't matter how similar two people are. If you lock them in a room long enough, they're going to come out with a long list of stuff they disagree about. Right? So, right out of the gate, man, being of the same mind is, doesn't it seem impossible? It, it does to me. If two people can't agree on everything, how about you multiply that by dozens or hundreds in a church setting? Unity of thought and mind, it sounds like an impossible task. In fact, to get anything close to unity, you kind of have to move into a cult-like status, right? We don't want that here. That's a no-go. But like I, I said, that there's, there's also... There's also really important stuff that's worthy of dividing over. Um, it's October, which means theology nerds like me, uh, instead of celebrating Halloween, are celebrating Reformation Day. All right, just to, to reveal a little bit of my nerddom. All right, um, so uh, on October 31st, the day that you celebrate pumpkins and weird stuff like that, uh, I celebrate the fact that Martin Luther uh, had the gall to go march down to the Castle Church at Wittenberg and nail his 95 theses on the on the door there. It's kind of this public sounding board, and he was his purpose was to request a public debate in order to address the excesses of the Catholic Church in their day. But but he ended up sparking what we call the Reformation. Right? It, it, slightly bigger deal than what he initially intended, but it was also kind of incredibly, oops, <laughs> it's also kind of incredibly necessary, right? There, there's an unbridgeable chasm between what Protestants believe and what Catholics believe. Full stop. Unbridgeable chasm. I'll, I'll go ahead and plant my flag. We're not talking about the same gospel. Not at all. 
We are on different teams. And, and I, I, I lovingly want to say that anybody who thinks otherwise either doesn't understand Protestant theology or they don't, don't understand Catholic theology or they don't understand either. They're not at all the same. Our differences are worthy, completely worthy of dividing over. But here in 1 Corinthians, we have Paul calling for unity. So what does that mean? There are things worthy of dividing over in our world, but Paul says, be of one mind. So either Paul is completely naive here, or the unity he's calling for is more nuanced than we initially read. Right? So what is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about a posture that that gives priority to things that are mission critical and that is quick to overlook or maybe even sometimes dismiss things that aren't. I think that's what he's talking about. I think he's calling for a spiritually mature triage that, that counts and, and figures out and, and makes sense of uh, important things as important things and is strategic to allow inconsequential things to remain inconsequential. Not a level that differences don't matter, that we try to pretend that they don't exist. That's moving into that cult-like field again, right? But to a level where we can't be distracted by the petty. You find it easy to get distracted by the petty? I find it easy to get distracted by the petty. But how do we know that it's the petty, inconsequential version that's going on in Corinth, right? Well, Look at verse 11. Paul says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. How many of you hear the word quarreling and you immediately have Vietnam-style flashbacks of your kids growing up? Is it just me? Am I the only one that gets those? I guess I'm the only one that gets those. Okay. Yeah, that, that, what do you picture when you hear quarreling? You hear nonsense, Right? Quarreling carries the idea of a rivalry. Um, you've got a foe, and you've got to you know, find a way to stick it to him somehow. You ever had a rival? But why, why do you need to stick it to him? Because they're your rival, and that's what you do to a rival, right? That's how rivalries work. Hey, New England, how do you feel about the New York football giants? <laughs> I, th I think you see where this is going. If I, if I spend a little time this morning talking about the incredible Eli Manning and his two amazing Super Bowl victories, he's only got two, but they matter here. You're going to count this as a good day? You, you like those guys? That contention that wells up inside of us, that, that, that kind of inner desire to say, yeah, but, where does that come from? It's a sense of rivalry just for rivalry's sake, right? You can't let your opponent have their day. Some, one of you, at least one person is going to come up to me after the service and say, yeah, 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 but. It's coming. You've got to find a way to undercut that somehow. See, it's cute when we do that with football teams. It's significantly less cute when it moves outside of sports and starts affecting the rest of our lives, right? Isn't it? When bickering and backbiting and quarreling happen at work, don't you just start to hate your job? 
When it happens in your neighborhood, don't you consider moving? When it happens in politics, you begin to disengage. When it happens in the church, the cause of the gospel is overshadowed by nonsense. Right? Corinth is beginning to be broken apart at the seams by a petty tribalism. We're told that it's affecting their unity. And while we're not told explicitly, it's got to be affecting their witness. It's affecting what God has placed them in Corinth for. So how are these factions playing out in Corinth? What's the drama look like? Well, look at verse 12. Paul says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So, so people are dividing up into tribes, right? right? Uh, and they're naming their symbolic leaders. And, and the first one is Paul. We all know who Paul is, right? He's the guy who writes this letter. And so this one is, this, this one is obvious. And so Paul started the church in Corinth. He, he, we can, if you want to call him that, he was the first pastor there. Uh, he evangelized the area. God used Paul in an absolutely massive way, right? Everybody ought to look up to Paul just a little bit. I look up to Paul a little bit. It sounds like a good guy to follow. The second guy is Apollos. If you don't know who Apollos was, he was a traveling evangelist. We know from Acts 18 and 19 that he traveled to Corinth after Paul left, and he stayed there for a while. Right? And so he stayed uh, in Corinth uh, preaching, and whether he was in, had an official capacity in, in the church or not, he was there, and he was preaching powerfully in Corinth. We know that for certain. right? And so the third guy is Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for Peter, Aramaic name for Peter. right? And so There's no biblical record of Peter ever going to Corinth, but there's also no biblical record that he didn't go to Corinth. So we're not sure where Peter is uh, in in a big old window of time. So the Bible doesn't say where he was uh, in between Paul leaving Corinth and Paul writing this letter. Uh, And so we can get creative, though, with Paul and Peter's timelines and and figure out a couple of different ways for Peter to have passed through Corinth at least for a little while. Uh, And then finally, the fourth name that's dropped is Jesus. And that sounds really spiritual, right? The problem, though, is that's all it really is. It just sounds spiritual. You ever been around somebody that constantly makes over-spiritualized statements like they're some kind of atom bomb? Only me? Okay. Oh, you follow Peter? I follow Jesus. I follow Christ. They have no aim other than to just silence everybody else and seem pious. It happens a lot in churches. Never happens here, ever. So factions are emerging, right? Factions are emerging in the Corinthian church around these kind of symbolic teachers. Everybody's choosing their side. And what's really, really interesting to me is that these people aren't really enemies of each other. They're all on the same team. Like, there's no, there's no major differences between these guys. They, they had their disagreements for sure over minor stuff, but there's no disagreement at all between them when it comes to the fundamental doctrines of the faith. The gospel is the same orthodox gospel through each and every one of these guys. They had disagreements for sure, but when it came to the things that actually mattered, they're on the same team. 
as best as I can tell, all right, and, and maybe, maybe in my finiteness there's more going on here than I can tell, but as best as I can tell, the only real difference between these four guys is the style by which they lived. That's, that's it. Paul is incredibly intelligent, probably not very charismatic. You get the impression that he's pretty heady, all right, hard to follow sometimes, but super deep. That's Paul. Apollos was pretty much the exact opposite of that from what we can tell. We're told that he's super articulate and fun to listen to. He's an incredible preacher. Uh, uh, A couple people had to pull him aside and correct some doctrine one day because he was varying off into, into some not good space, but man, he could hold a crowd, right? Apollos was a fun preacher. I told you last week that, that Alexandria was kind of seen as the epicenter for these grand speeches uh, that were made in their culture. Apollos was from Alexandria. He grew up in that culture. He grew up in that environment. He's pretty good at it. And then Peter, well, Peter doesn't seem to really do the speech thing at all. He's more the meat and potatoes kind of guy. Give me the facts and get out of here. That's Peter. So as best as I can tell, and again, maybe, Maybe I'm just incomplete here, but as best as I can tell, the factions emerging in Corinth are, are, are really nothing more than a petty tribalism around which pastor they like best. And it's probable that none of these guys were even there at the same time. I like this guy and the way he leads more than that guy. I like this guy's preaching better than that guy's preaching. That, that really seems to be all there is going on here. If there is a more fundamental division going on, it's not spelled out for us. So we're left to believe that that's really all it is. And, and guys, I, th- I think that this points us to something that we really need to pay careful attention to. Whether, something that's important whether we're talking about Corinthians or we're somewhere else in the Bible. Um, I think that our sinful hearts, I really think this is true, I think our sinful hearts are actually capable of creating controversy and drama and division even when there is none. I think we long for a fight and we'll make one if we're not actively engaged in the right one. We'll drum up controversy because we're not engaged in the controversy that we ought to be chasing after. Yes and amen, there are real reasons to take a stand on an issue. We can point to thousands of them throughout history, and even some in the history of our church. There are real reasons to take a stand on an issue, and there are obvious moments where division is is the right thing to do. Not just might be the right thing to do, it is the right thing to do. But can we be honest this morning? That's not usually the story. That's not what plays out for us most of the time. We have a whole bunch of moments where we're just going full moron. Am I wrong? We've got more stories than we can count where we've chosen to die on a hill that never even deserved a battle, let alone martyrdom. So how do we consistently find ourselves in that place? Why, why do we continue to, to find ourselves, maybe not as often as Corinth, but still we got our share. Why do we continue to find ourselves in a place where we chase after and divide over the petty rather than the significant. Well, I think that we lose sight of our God-given identity and our God-given purpose. If you're thinking, oh, that sounds familiar, it's because it was the exact same problem we saw last week when we were talking about the misuse of our gifts. 
Same disease, different symptoms. When you lose sight of your God-given identity, you will inevitably create a sad little myopic one for yourself every time. When you... Whenever you lose sight of your God-given purpose, you'll inevitably allow some cheaper, temporary purpose to raise itself to the top and pretend like it's the purpose you ought to be pursuing. Every time. And so what ends up happening is that intramural fights emerge. Mostly because we just forgot what team we're actually on. We start picking teams, forgetting that we were already picked to a team. We forget what opponent we're supposed to be fighting against. In, a, in another letter in Ephesians, Paul tells the church there that they don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, right? We wrestle against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil, he says. Yes and amen. There's there's a time to take a stand. But sometimes, sometimes our intramural fights are really just a giant distraction from the fight that we've actually been called to engage in. Sometimes. So Paul asks the question in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 14, I thank God that, I'm, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, so Paul started the church in Corinth. God used him in an incredibly powerful way, but he says here, he actually has the gall to say here, that he's thankful that he didn't have a bigger impact in that city because it would have led to even more people being distracted by the nonsense. It would have led to even more people missing the point of why he was there. He's thankful that God limited his impact in Corinth so that he's not a bigger distraction to folks who are being morons right now. That's what he says. What are you talking about? Christ can't be divided. You weren't baptized in my name. There is no team Paul and there is no team Apollos. Whether you want to talk about Paul's time in Corinth or Apollos' time in Corinth or maybe Peter's time in Corinth, their season was a temporary moment in a longer eternal work of a greater king. They were servants, not leaders. And listen, I, I know the temptation here. It's, it's in my own heart. That can come off sounding over-spiritualized and wishy-washy. I really, I really think it can. And, oh, you know, Jesus gets the credit for it all. But Paul's tone here, church, his, his tone is one of a slave fulfilling his assignment. Of a slave fulfilling his assignment. He had a job to do, and he executed that job according to his master's command. So what was the command? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Don't, don't dress it up with anything. Just preach it in its bare, naked simplicity. Apollos was an incredibly bright and articulate young man. I have no doubt that he fit right in in Corinth. I bet they loved him there. 
The people who valued articulate wisdom and knowledge, uh, I bet they adored Apollos during his time there. In fact, Corinth got a little pastor search committee together, and they did a little survey of what is the church looking for in our next candidate. I guarantee Apollos is the guy getting the job. That's how that rolls out. But whether his personality meshed well with Corinth or not, it's irrelevant to the fact that Paul had a different calling. That's not what Jesus told Paul to do. He didn't have the same calling as Apollos did. Apollos seems to have been allowed to to kind of lean into his giftedness in Corinth. God called him to be that guy there. But God called Paul to something different. He was called to preach the simplicity of a countercultural gospel into what seems like a pretty narcissistic city, right? The, the more we're going to learn about Corinth, the more we're going to get the impression that they were too impressed with eloquent wisdom. Can, can the gospel be preached with eloquent wisdom? Absolutely. In fact, from my vantage point, I think it needs to happen more often in our culture. I think that's a good thing to, to make happen more and more in our culture. I long for the day when preachers finally get tired of telling cute little stories about themselves. I long for that day. Oh, but it helps people connect. No, I want something transcendent. But Paul's calling for his time in Corinth was incredibly unique. He he knew that Corinth was too distracted by eloquence. He knew that they leaned too heavily on that eloquence. He knew, he knew that they needed to, to have that stripped away so that people would not be impressed with his eloquence and instead be transformed by the power of the cross alone. Eloquent wisdom is a tool that can be picked up or put down based on the needs of the day, but the cross of Christ is the irreducible kernel that actually saves sinners. It actually saves. The, the, the sinless Savior who became a curse for us, who made payment for our sin through his broken body and shed blood, who died and was raised again to reconcile us to God. Atonement paid, our sin removed, his righteousness accounted to us. That is necessary. All the dressing around it can come and go. But that Jesus died to save us from our sin and reconcile us to God, that's the irreducible kernel that we need. The factions in Corinth, in, in, the, in the midst of their bickering, in the midst of their backbiting, in the midst of their uh, uh, bickering rivalries, they lost sight of the singular reality that united them all together in the first place. Everything else is just style. Everything else is just window dressing. The sacrificial death of their king is what saved them. That's the only reason they're in the room. Without Jesus' death on the cross to save them from their sin and reconcile them to each other as he reconciles them to himself, without that, they're just some random group of people in a room. That's it. Without Jesus, they're not a church. They're a crowd. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. And I'm so glad you're hanging out with us. But in the most sincere and compassionate way, I can say this out loud. You're an outsider here. 
You are. An incredibly welcome one. I'm glad you're here. Ask questions. Make yourself at home. Grab a cup of coffee on your way out. You're welcome here, but you also need to understand that Nashua Baptist is not a collection of people who couldn't find something better to do on a Sunday morning. That's not what's going on here. God has gathered a people to represent him, a people he has saved for his purposes, who now have an identity based in him and him alone. We're an eclectic family of people who don't make any sense at all hanging out anywhere other than this place. We don't... We don't make any sense at all being down at Walmart together. We don't all live in the same neighborhood. We, we come from different political persuasions and different socioeconomic backgrounds. I don't know if you've noticed this, but some of us talk with a weird accent. <laughs> Stay away from those guys. They're dangerous. But Jesus reconciles his people to each other as he reconciles them to himself. So our common bond is not any of those lesser, mere mortal things. Our common bond is Jesus and what he has done for his people. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to have a time of music. We're not, we're not there yet, but that's a time where we recall people to respond to God's word. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word today. And you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated from God because of our sin. We deserve his wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love. And even when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive together with Christ. By grace, you can be saved. Jesus came, he lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to pay the penalty for the debt of sin that is owed by you. And he was, uh, he, he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so now as the conquering king, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to trust him and him alone as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. When that time comes, I'm going to be standing down front here, and if you want somebody to talk to, I'd love to talk to you. Listen, Jesus doesn't need to use me. He doesn't need some priest or go-between. He is the go-between. He wants to give you himself. But I'd love to be helpful to you. We can talk about it. I'd love to help you figure out what this response of faith looks like, whether you're in the room or you're watching us online. Again, use the contact form. You can respond to Jesus today. But, but what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How do, how do we respond? Well, we've actually left a gigantic question unanswered so far. It's an incredibly important question. If losing sight of our God-given identity and our God-given purpose results in rivalries and quarreling and the elevation of distractions, what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of that? The opposite is being on purpose to remember. It's being on purpose to remember who we are, what we've been called to do. Jesus knew that. Like, he's smart like that, right? Jesus knew that. He saw it coming, and he lovingly, patiently prepared us for exactly this moment by giving us an incredibly simple picture to remember. Right? Hey, you dropped your coffee cup, too. That makes two. 
On the night that Jesus was arrested, he gathered his inner circle of followers into a place that we call the upper room, and he gathered them there to celebrate the Passover meal, right? Maybe, maybe you're familiar with the, the Easter story, or maybe you're not. A, a millennium-old feast, right? Ancient feast for them, designed to, to help the Jews remember when God saved them from doom by simply placing their faith in who he is and what he called them to do. I mean, think about that, how crazy that sounds for a second. <laughs> think about the, the, the Passover story. Like painting your doorpost with the blood of a spotless lamb seems like an out-of-bound thing to do most days. That's supposed to save you from death during the night? From a dark, terrifying night? Does that really work? But like always... God usually seems to have a much bigger plan than anybody else is paying attention to. Their call was to trust. The command to remember and celebrate that moment is passed down generation by generation until another spotless lamb steps onto the scene and claims it as his own. He says crazy upside down things like, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. Seems about as effective as painting blood on a doorpost. It's just crazy things like this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, take and drink. Completely upside down. But like always, Jesus usually seems to have a much bigger plan than anybody else is paying attention to. He tells his followers that they are to practice this meal regularly because it'll help them remember. It'll help us remember who he is. It'll help us remember what he has done. It'll help us remember who we are in him. And church family, it'll help us remember who he has called us to be, both individually and corporately. The answer to our problems, our petty factions of division, it's not a lofty, eloquent wisdom. It's the stripped-down reality of Jesus' death in our place. We remember that. We solve all those other things. They disappear. The world around us may think that that's upside down, but those who know Jesus know how beautiful it is. And so we have the privilege this morning of remembering that. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your chance to, to grab your stuff. This is our response to God's word this morning. If you're not a Christian yet, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I, I really am, but uh, this isn't for you. It's kind of a family meal. Um, there's nothing magical about it. It's, it's just a wafer and some juice. Um, by worldly standards, there's nothing impressive going on here. And I, I kind of think that's another on-purpose thing. It's going to seem backwards that this would be significant to anyone. It's another upside-down reality. But th this meal isn't supposed to appear impressive to those who aren't a part of the family. For those who are, there's something much deeper and bigger and beautiful going on here. So what sets this moment apart then? Like, If it's not impressive in its elements... What, what makes this special? 
I think it's the repentance that God calls us to before we eat and drink. There's, there's nothing impressive about the elements of the make of this meal, but the meal itself is not an insignificant act. It's not to be taken lightly. God calls us to have an honest assessment of our sin and to, to walk in humility and repentance before him whenever we participate in this. And, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and I think that also means that we seek reconciliation with each other before we take this. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells his disciples that if they're offering a gift on the altar and they suddenly remember that their brother has something against them, they should stop what they're doing, set it down, and go fix the problem before they make their offering. Being, being reconciled to your brother is not the same thing as being reconciled to God, not even close, but Jesus does seem to think that it's important. Important enough to hang on and wait and get some things right first. that a failure to pursue it somehow inhibits correctly worshiping him. So this meal, it's, it's not only an opportunity to remember what Jesus has done for us, but, but we also participate in it together for a reason. It's an opportunity to remember our shared identity in him. Saved by grace, reconciled to each other as we are reconciled to him. So in a second, I'm going to pray, and JB's going to lead us in some, some music. But That's a moment set aside for us to respond to his words. So, uh, this morning, we have the privilege of responding in this special way, but listen, don't, don't rush into it. Take a moment. See your need for a Savior. That's why he came. That's why he died. This is no insignificant act. Take a moment and repent of sin before a holy God. And maybe, maybe, take the moment to be reconciled to your brother. But whenever you're ready, we'll take the bread and take the juice. And in doing so, we will remember his goodness and his great love for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for this picture of your death. Would you humble us before you? Our sin doesn't pre prevent us from taking this meal. It necessitates this meal. Wafer and juice. Such a seemingly insignificant thing. But loaded with beauty. You are good to us that way. Thank you for coming to die and to be raised again so that we might be made whole. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you call them to yourself right now? Open eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know. Draw men and women into your kingdom even as we celebrate the picture of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.